How and why do people disappear? If you brought somebody in to help you disappear, have you actually disappeared? We will deal with missing persons on a daily basis, so we're the national experts. Every year, over 300,000 reports of a missing person are made to the police. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched. You'll go missing, and we'll allow it that you're never found. People set up We are perfectly capable of holding on to important secrets. Anything that you're doing, you're basically mm -hmm. leaving a trace. Your duly elected representatives have been consistently informed. Could somebody go missing without a trace? I'm not sure. You're not looking for them. You're looking for the information they left behind. I'm Tim Weaver, author of the David Raker series. Over the course of Missing, I'll be investigating how people can vanish in the 21st century and how we find them again. Join me as I speak with experts in forensics, human behaviour, surveillance and investigation, and we look into the art of disappearance. After six episodes, I think we're starting to get a pretty good idea of how people disappear, why, and how difficult the process is, both technically, psychologically, and emotionally. We followed data trails, been terrified by stats about surveillance cameras, investigated biometrics, and learned some of the techniques used by hacking groups like Anonymous to stay under the radar. Much of what we've covered so far has been about looking forward it's been about trying to predict what technology will be used to find you and how the advancement of that technology will make disappearing even harder than ever. But this week, we're going to look back. We're going to seek out some historical cases that show how people have gone missing. We're going to see if the lessons learned from old investigations can shed light on modern-day cases. And what better place to do that than at the Museum of London, who are running the first ever exhibition of objects from the Metropolitan Police's Crime Museum. Curator Jackie Kiley took us behind the scenes on an, at times, pretty macabre tour. We started with the baffling case of Roger Tichborne. I think it's fair to say that most people today wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about if I told you about the Tichborne claimant, but yet if we went back to the 1870s, the 1880s, people would have known very, very much. And it all centred around the heir to the baronetcy, uh, the Tichborne baronetcy, and he went missing in 1854 as a young man. He was travelling abroad in South America. He um, got on board a ship and the ship went down off the coast of South America. He went missing, but his mother refused to believe. She was back in, in England, and she refused to believe that um, he had died. Um, and so she put out various appeals, and time goes by. 1854, he goes missing. And by the mid-1860s, we have a man turning up in Wagga Wagga in Australia, claiming to be the claimant of the Tichborne baronetcy. He claims to be Roger Tichborne. His name is Thomas Castro and he's a butcher in Wagga Wagga, but he claims that he's lost his memory and that he's been in Australia for some years, but he, he knows this is who he is, so he realises this is who he is. So if he'd lost his memory, how, how did he realise that he was... Good question. That's a good question, right. It's, it was sort of patchy, which is where right, I suppose okay. if you're going to become a claimant and you're not really the claimant, this is where it becomes quite clever in a way. Yeah. Because he could remember certain things but not other things. And he travels to Sydney and there he met two ex-retainers of the Tichborne family. And one of them 
believes that. He definitely is the claimant. The other one doesn't believe it. But obviously, by talking to them, he also learns things about the family. People who follow the case still today are divided over whether he really was the claimant or not. And of course, importantly, one of the things you, you were telling me off air is that his mother believed that it was him, and that's quite compelling. You know, that does provide quite a lot of evidence Absolutely. from that side of the story. Absolutely. Um, Lady Tichborne is in Paris, and eventually he has to travel there to meet her, but she almost instantly recognises him and accepts him as her son, as her long-lost son. In many respects, it's quite a sad story because obviously she was desperate to find him. And also her second son, her youngest son, also dies. So there, you know, there obviously was a mourning mother desperate to find her child. Um, so it was a really conflicting case, which is why I think it grabbed the public imagination so much. People were fascinated by this idea that this person could be lost and then suddenly found all this time later. And some of these objects you, you've got here demonstrate how much it caught the public's imagination. Absolutely. We have a thing called the Tichburn Gazette, which was produced um, as a sort of newspaper that would set out the story and that was being sold to people. As time went on, he had a lot of support, so he had money coming in, but he also had to raise money. At the end of the criminal case, Castro, who by that time had actually been identified as possibly being a man called Arthur Orton from uh, Wapping. And so we have here an image of him in his prison cell. He was sent to prison for about 14 years. And we have a prison image of him kind of contemplating his future, looking very down. Uh, we also have a number of little objects that belong to Arthur Orton, so things like um, nail clippers, scissors, keys, things like that, and that were obviously taken from him when he was arrested. And amongst those also is a little clipping of his hair, which was taken in Millbank Prison um, when he was arrested and was awaiting trial there. And that was standard procedure, or did they take it to try no. and identify him? Or I think it was taken as a kind of souvenir more than anything else. It's wrapped up in a little piece of paper that someone has written a lock of the hair of Arthur Orton. Our next case takes us to Harley Street in London. If we move along the chronology a little bit uh, to, to our next case, um, it's to do with a, a, a death in Harley Street. Yes, this, uh, this one is from 1880 and it's called the Harley Street Mystery or the Harley Street Murder. Mystery is probably a good term for it and within the area that you're looking at of disappearing people, this is very much a case of someone who completely disappeared. In 1880, servants in the household of a wealthy merchant called Jacob Enriquez noticed a sort of smell in the, in the basement in the kitchen area and where the storerooms were. And on investigation, they found a barrel. And within the barrel, when it was prized open, they found the body of a woman. Now, the body of the woman had been there for some years and it was slightly mummified. On extracting the body, the police surgeon at the time measured her. They took casts of her jaw and she was quite a short woman she was probably stabbed through the chest, but so little was remaining of the body that it was difficult to be certain of that. Traces of her clothing were found, and we have here little boxes which contain the very, very meagre fragments of, of cloth that survived um, within the barrel. So is this, this is part of a dress, is that? It's, it's sort of like a, la a lace edging, yeah. um, and again, linen, which may have been from underclothing. 
these are the early days of detective work and um, all of these things pointed to the fact that she wasn't a very wealthy woman but beyond that they couldn't say an awful lot about her so all of these were kept as evidence and of course the hope was that she would be identified but she never was and neither was her murderer and what's interesting is that at that time in London, in any city, presumably in the UK, uh, a woman could disappear and no one laid claim to her at all. We have other cases where a body is found or sometimes parts of a body were found and eventually people came forward and would, would identify. So, you know, often people were identified, but equally, yes, often they weren't. It's a very moving story because... Here we have this woman, and we have no idea what happened to her. That's a pretty gruesome example of an unidentified victim, but it underlines the impact that things like forensics and biometrics have in the modern era. Would the woman have stayed unidentified if she'd been murdered in 2015? It seems unlikely, or does it? Remember these words from Sherry Makara of the UK Missing Persons Bureau, who we interviewed in the investigation episode. Things like forensics is one thing that we will provide uh, advice and support on. So we manage the missing persons DNA database. Um, we also have links into the National Fingerprint Office and we maintain a national dental index as well. It's quite a broad spectrum and it really does depend on the circumstance. The MPB run and maintain an entire database full of unidentified remains with the purpose of trying to match them to missing people. Again, think about that 1% that stay missing. How many of them, like the woman in the barrel, died anonymously and stayed that way? Now for a case that's not for the faint-hearted. It's the acid bath murderer, John Haig. Some of this stuff is it's pretty gruesome. John Haig was obviously quite a charming man because he, he managed to charm his way into many people's lives. Um, this is 1949, so a few years after the Second World War. And in 1949, he charms a wealthy widow called Mrs Olive Durandeacon and he persuades her to visit his workshop down in Crawley um, in Sussex. And they go down there from London and he shoots her and then he dissolves her body in sulfuric acid. It's quite a startling and bizarre method of murder, but it's one that he had kind of developed over a number of years. He had come to the idea that if you could get rid of a body completely, the police wouldn't be able to prove murder against you and therefore you could get away with murder. He's convicted for the murder of Duran Deacon, but it's widely assumed that he also murdered at least five other people. So starting with the McSwan family, he got to know their son and then through them, he got to know the older parents. Um, he kills the son, then he kills the parents and again, dissolves all the bodies. He then takes on the older father's pension checks, um, bank accounts, the house, things like that. So he's, he's effectively assuming their identities he, for a time. Yes, he's a gambler. He's always in need of money. And so once he's exhausted the finances of the person he's just killed, he then looks on to find another victim. Even though this is like 50, 60, 70 years after the Harley Street murder, which we were talking about, you're still talking about people 
disappearing from public life completely, uh, okay, in this case, dissolved in a drum of acid, but disappearing from public life and it taking a long time for people to catch up to the fact that these people have gone missing. In part because he would forge letters, so he would spread the word that people were travelling. So I suppose what he was able to do was maybe put out those ideas that these people were off doing something else. He must have been an extremely convincing liar and deceiver. I think that's the crux of it in a way. Utterly charming and very convincing. The fact that, you know, he basically almost brags to the police that he's, he has killed Olive Durand Deacon, but that they can't pin it on him. You know, he has a confidence there where he's just assuming he won't get caught. I think almost starting this kind of career in disappearing people in that way shows a certain level of confidence that for most of us is, is breathtaking. But eventually his terrible deeds caught up with him and you've got some evidence of that here, including some gallstones of all things. These are the casts of the gallstones from Olive Duran Deacon and we also have here again a plaster cast of her left foot, the bones of her left foot. He did a very, very successful job. I mean, he was very good at what he did. By the time he was dissolving Olive Duran Deacon, he had done this a number of times and he was perfecting it all the time. So by the time he did dissolve her body, he was pretty confident that he was doing a, a very good job and that nothing would remain, but he didn't really reckon with the skills of the Home Office pathologist, Dr Keith Simpson, who was pretty amazing. Even on the first day that he walked into this yard, you see photos of it, it's a very run-down kind of workshop yard in Crawley, and um, there's lots of sort of waste stuff on waste ground and things. And as he walked towards the workshop, he bent down and picked up um, what he thought was some sort of but actually with a doctor's eye, he recognised them as almost certainly gallstones. And more of these um, were found then in uh, what was termed the sludge, uh, not a very nice term, I'm afraid, but it, it, what was remained of the body, basically, in, in the tank. So was the foot also, that also didn't dissolve? Or yeah, enough right? of these bones. They found a number, a very limited number of, of bones which came from her body, fragments of bones, but the most complete part was, was this left foot, of which only part, again, survived. And we've got, a, yeah, you can see it right here, yeah, it's, it's clearly a, clearly a foot. But the most important thing for actually specifically identifying her were the um, dentures which didn't dissolve and her dentist was able to identify the dentures as being from her. Another object that we have here, which as a woman, I find it quite emotional in a way because it's the remains of her red handbag, which was a little red plastic handbag. And as you can see, we just have basically parts of the handle surviving yeah. and the sides. And what's, what's this thing here? That's part of the base of it. So there's right, just the okay. fragments, basically all of the textile threads that would have held it together, of course, have disintegrated. It's just basically the bare plastic bits. How long did he get away with it for? Four or five years. Four or five years doesn't sound a lot, I suppose, but it is a long time to sort of get away with just disappearing people into thin air without anyone noticing. It's this post-war period as well. You know, the, the Second World War ends in 1945. You have lots of people that are displaced. A lot of people were living in hotels if they could afford to. I suppose without family close by, without, you know, if you're a widow or you were a single person, you were living there. And so in some respects, it was quite easy to disappear. Not disappear Quite a transient culture, yes. I guess. And I think that's it. A lot of people had lost their homes. A lot of people had lost their loved ones or emotionally had had, you know, a difficult time through the war. And when he was arrested and, and charged, he was pretty unrepentant about what he'd done. In fact, he seemed to almost revel in it. Would that be fair? 
Yes, I think he felt supremely confident that he wouldn't be caught and he probably felt that all the way along. And he also tried to convince the, the police and the investigators that he was insane. So he also became known as the vampire murderer because he claimed he had um, drank the blood of the people he had killed. I have to say there was never any proof found for that at all, but he claimed it. So yeah, he was a very, very confident uh, murderer, very charming, very confident, and I think probably used to getting his own way. And, and he probably felt that through his powers of persuasion, he would get out of that no matter how. Remember when Frank Ahern talked about leaving a false trail for people to follow? Haig was a proponent of that, clearly. Our forensic psychiatrist, Nigel Blackwood, will also recognise a lot of his work here, especially his research into psychopaths. Haig ticks so many boxes on the now-renowned psychopath test and his stunning lack of empathy and his cold-blooded deception, even his enjoyment of lying, was one of the reasons he stayed off the grid for so long. I asked Nigel whether psychopaths would make more effective missing people. They are certainly fluent, plausible liars. Cleckley used a beautiful phrase that referred to their duping delight, you know, their love of setting up a whole series of lies and seeing to the extent to which you buy it. Haig, although not a missing person himself, certainly seems to back that idea up. He was confident, charming and completely detached. Now for a case about several people who managed to disappear professionally over and over again. OK, so moving on to a very, very interesting case in the early 60s to do with a Portland spy ring. Uh, the Portland Spy Ring was in 1961, and of course this was kind of the height of the Cold War period. It's very James Bondish this period, and you know I guess that's what we all think about those kind of James Bond movies, and particularly when you look at these objects that were recovered as part of this case. Um, this case hinges around um, five people who were spying for the Soviet Union. They were based in Britain, largely in London, and they were buying information about the first uh, nuclear submarines. What we had was largely hinging around a man called Gordon Lonsdale and a couple, Peter and Helen Kroger. And the Krogers were living a very suburban life. They had a, a little bungalow in Ryslip and um, they seemed to be normal, everyday suburban dwellers to their neighbours. He ran a second-hand and antiquarian book business, which of course was a perfect cover for shipping goods, books, across Europe. What they were doing was they were getting the um, information, plans or other information about Britain's early nuclear submarines, as I say, and they were minimising that onto a kind of microfiche film. And one of the really interesting objects here is a talcum powder container called the Three Flowers Talcum Powder. But when one twisted the top and pulled it off, uh, inside were two secret compartments. And inside one of these compartments was found another object that I can show you here, which is what looks like a tiny little telescope. Yeah, yeah it looks exactly like a telescope. And microdots were used to uh, transmit highly sensitive information, but they were literally the size of a full stop. So for someone like a Peter Kroger, it was a brilliant way to kind of send messages because he could send them inside his books. Oh, and here, we must talk talk about this thing here, which looks like a, 
it's a circular piece of wood with a kind of brass instrument in the center poking out but but what is this kind of poking out the top this is one of those very elaborate uh, sort of 1950s 60s large cigarette lighters the sort of thing that at cocktail parties one would have gone around lighting people's cigarettes but you had to sort of hold it with two hands because it's so enormous but in this one of course the actual cigarette lighter in the center unscrews and you again have secret compartments inside it this this is where it kind of gets interesting is that these people weren't who they said they were. I mean, that seems obvious at this point because they're shipping highly sensitive information to the Soviet Union. But Gordon Lonsdale, for example, I think he was a deep, deep cover KGB agent. His real name was Conan Melody, and he was a Soviet agent who had taken on the name Gordon Lonsdale. Gordon Lonsdale had been a real person, a Canadian, who had died, I think, in about 1943. And the Soviets had managed to take his whole persona basically his passport his identity and use it for one of their agents and then he recruited these other people along the way who also they may well have gone by the name Kroger but that wasn't their real name they were actually an American couple called Morris and Lona Cohen and they had been living in New York they were active Soviet spies in New York they then moved in the 50s back to Moscow before reappearing in about 1954 I think in London as the Krogers. The Krogers, for example, as you mentioned earlier, just lived a kind of seemingly perfect suburban life. Outwardly, no one would have known a thing. So incredibly, incredibly clever, but with this veneer of, of a very ordinary suburban lifestyle. And he was running the bookshop and they were mixing with their neighbours. And, you know, there's a famous story where they were asked to a party and apparently Helen Kroger turned up in this very dramatic long dress and and her friend said to her you know you look like a Russian spy and and she laughed it off Peter her husband laughed it off they all laughed and then some months later hey presto they were in the in the press as Russian spies Yeah. yeah So they've got this perfect veneer, this perfect uh, suburban existence, and yet eventually everything kind of crumbled to dust. How did the veneers start to fade? It's really down to the non-professional spies, really. There's a guy called Harry Houghton, who was a civil servant, who was passing them the secret information to do with the dreadnought. And investigators begin to notice that he has quite a lavish lifestyle compared to uh, what he's earning as a civil servant. Which just goes to show that uh, if you're a professional spy, don't involve anyone, uh, ordinary civilians. That's right, they received prison sentences, I think between about 15 and 25 years, they all received different sentences. But after about um, four or five years or so, they were traded back, yes, Lonsdale initially, and then the Krogers later on. And there were a wonderful period, uh, you know, newsreel of the Krogers sitting on their flight, about to fly back to Moscow, being poured champagne and being lauded. And they were, once they got back to the Soviet Union, they were heroes. This case is so fascinating. It encompasses so much of what we've talked about so far in the series. The behavior of these people, people who are effectively on the run, echoes the idea put forward in different ways by both Frank and Quinn that you should never trust anyone. The Portland spy ring used the technology of the time to stay ahead too. And that runs parallel to one of the key questions we've raised over the course of missing. Does technology help? or hinder missing people. But their weaknesses, the things that got them caught, were the same weaknesses our guests talked about. In the end, the members of the Portland spy ring were outed because of their reliance on other people and because they exhibited unlikely spending patterns. That shows flaws in human behavior 
and no amount of technological advancement can ever mitigate that. During our visit to the Museum of London, the historical cases we were shown might not all directly be missing persons investigations, but they provided a fascinating insight into the themes and ideas that have cropped up so regularly over the course of the series. Staying hidden, sometimes in plain sight, is the obvious through line in all of this, and reminds me of something Clive Reedman, our biometrics expert, said in the You're On Camera episode, that actually the best way to disappear might not be to go and live on a mountain, but go and live on the streets of any modern city, that even with all the security cameras trained on you, no one would be looking for you in that place, in that way, in that point in time. In a way, it was how John Haig got away with it for so long. More generally though, I think it underlines how much harder it is to disappear now than 100, 80, even 50 years ago. Cameras, mobile phones, data, it builds such a compelling detailed picture of us, sometimes without us knowing, and none of the people in our cases had to worry about those things. Yet conversely, there are areas in which historical and modern missing persons investigations aren't so different. In fact, they are startling in their similarity. Usually it involves our behaviour and the ways in which being human will get us caught. But while the cases we've been looking at today have long since been consigned to history, there are other, more modern cases where the trail has gone just as cold. Next week on Missing. Some police officers just have that absolute passion to resolve that case. They get very, very, very protective of families. It doesn't matter if they went missing two days ago or three years ago or ten years ago. That moment is the same. I think it's one of the worst state that you can be in. We're back to the present day and looking at the impact of missing persons cases on the people left behind. <laughs>